James chapter 1 is where we are going to be. We're going to pick it up in verse 13 in a moment. Uh, the last few weeks, we've, in the first part of the first chapter there, we have, well, James was talking about trials and how to deal with trials. And, and it's the opposite of the way we tend to want to do it because he said we should consider it pure joy. And that's not what most of us do when, when trials come. Um, and, uh, but the interesting thing is when in that first verse, that, uh, not the first verse, but the verse where it talks about trials, uh, if you'll remember a few weeks back, we said that the word that's translated trials there, it can also be translated temptation. And so really what James does is, we're going to see tonight, he, he deals with that, that aspect of the word with trials, but then he starts to talk to us about temptation. And that's mostly what we're going to talk about tonight is the temptation, the source of temptation, how we deal with temptation and all those sort of things. So we're going to pick it up in verse 13, uh, James chapter 1. This is what he writes. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. <clears throat> Excuse me. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. There's a lot going on there, but as I said, we're going to focus in on the, uh, mostly on the, the section there where he's talking about temptation. And, and there were some believers, and there's still some people that, that uh, <coughs> there's still some people that, uh, sort of take this approach to life, but they, the, the, the thought process they have is, they say, since God allowed trials, uh, since God allows temptation, then He must also be the source of temptation. Um, and, and, and people who take that viewpoint, they would excuse their own sin by saying, well, since God allowed it, it's really God's fault that I sinned. But James, he takes some steps here to correct this, and he wants his readers to understand some really important things about temptation. And the first thing is very similar to what he said about the trials, because when he talked about trials, he said, hey, it's coming for all of us. It's the same thing here. The first thing he says about temptation is that temptation is always present, um, that nobody is exempt from temptation. In fact, even Jesus wasn't exempt from temptation, right? He never sinned, but he was certainly tempted. And so he, he says, when you are tempted, not if you are tempted. And, and we need to take it, what he says, in that light, in that, with that viewpoint of saying, not if I face temptation, but he, we need to look at it as saying, when temptation comes, when I, I face those temptations, that's when I, I need to do this. So... Uh, so just like test of faith, temptations are in, inevitable. There is, you know, right now there's this, all this talk about vaccines and that sort of thing. Well, guess what? There's no spiritual vaccine against temptation. Um, there, there is no get out of temptation free card. You know, there, 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 there's no alternative route to, to take to avoid the traps along the trail. No, no, not a person reading these words uh, is immune or innocent. You know, the, the, the aging monk that's, that's living his life in a monastery, monastery is no safer than, from temptation than the young person who's walking down the, the middle of a mall. The, the, the saint in, on his knees in prayer wrestles with temptation just as much as the salesman who's driving down the road in his luxury car. Doesn't matter who you are, what your walk of life is, what your spiritual maturity level is, you're going to face temptation. The second thing he brings out, and, and this, we're going to talk about this for a little bit. He's, he, he, the second thing he mentions is that God never prompts temptation. What he said was, no one should say, God is tempting me. No one should say, God is tempting me. Clearly, God does not whisper evil thoughts into our minds or create a, an alluring mental image. Uh, in fact, God is not even indirectly involved in temptation. Uh, while God uses trials and troubles to, uh, uh, in life to bring about his work of maturing us, 
the flip side of that is that God is never the author of temptation or evil. Never. It cannot happen. Uh, God's absolute goodness and absolute holiness guarantee the truth of what James is saying here. Because we, think about this. To, to be holy means to be separate from evil. To, to be set apart. To be untainted and untaintable. So, so holiness... When you think about the holiness of God, holiness has two sides. One of, it, one of the sides of holiness is the inability to be affected by evil. God is not tempted. Evil has no pull on him. So, so holiness has with it the inability to be affected by evil, but it also has with it the inability to cause evil. That's why God cannot be the source of temptation, because he cannot be the source that causes any kind of evil. For, for God, who is the, the sta absolute standard of holiness, both of these things are true. James says God is not able to be tempted, nor does he tempt. And the reason for that is because he is a holy God. And that's a whole different study that maybe we'll do sometime to understand really this whole concept of holiness. Um, because it's something that's often misunderstood in the world today. But it, it, ultimately, to be holy means to be set apart. And, and we'll talk about that maybe another time. But... You know, the problem with temptation uh, is really uh, one of the problems that we as, as, as human beings face is that from the beginning, it has always been a natural human response to make excuses and to blame other people for our sin. Can I get an amen? How many of you have ever had your child say, well, they made me do this? You know, or have you ever heard an adult say, you know, when they, lose, when, they, when they lost their temper, they said, well, he made me mad. No, no, no. You, you may have had anger in you, but you chose to respond in that way. And, and so we like to do that. And it goes back to the very, very beginning. This is Genesis chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. The man said, talking about Adam, the man said, speaking to God, he says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the, uh, from the tree and I ate it, which in a way... He's not just blaming the woman. He's sort of trying to blame God, too. R really, the same thing that James is saying, is where he says, let no one say, God uh, tempts me. Uh, because Adam is like, well, the woman, she tempted me, but you put her here, so ultimately it must be your fault. Then verse 13 of Genesis 3, then the Lord said, God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So they're constantly pointing the fingers and saying, saying, well, Adam's saying, well, it was her fault, kind of your fault too, God, but it was her fault. And, and God says, well, Eve, what are, you, what are you saying? And she's like, well, it's the serpent's fault. It's the, the devil made me do it. All of this stuff. And, and people make excuses all the time. And sometimes we get really sophisticated with it. Sometimes it's not, but, but we make all kinds of excuses. Oh, it's the other person's fault. I, I couldn't help it. Everybody's doing it. You know, you talk about blaming the other person. You know, there was a while back that uh, uh, my oldest daughter was driving down the road in, in my wife's car. And this girl pulled out in front of her, unavoidable. There was an accident. Nobody was hurt. But the, the funny part was afterwards, uh, the police came and they were taking statements from everybody. And this other girl, the other driver, said, uh, said to, the, to the officer, she, he, she said, it's her fault. And he kind of looked at her funny, but she said, I had plenty of time, but when I pulled out, she sped up so she could hit me. And the officer said, okay, let me get this straight. What you're telling me is that, that when she saw you pull out, she sped up just so she could run into your car. Yes, that's what I'm saying. And he told her in no uncertain words, you're out of your mind. And explained to her the whole concept of right of way, that sort of thing. But we do that. We say, oh, it's not my fault. It must be her fault. It can't be me. And, you know, everybody's doing it. Or we say, oh, it was just a mistake or nobody's perfect. And we use that excuse to say, well, everybody sins, so it's no big deal if I do. Or, or, or we might say, well, I didn't know it was wrong. Or, or, or back, you remember back in the 70s, uh, there was a big a uh, big popular thing, you know, they said, the devil made me do it, you know, and, and, or they say, I was pressured, my friends pushed, pushed me into it. But you know what, a person who makes excuses, all they're trying to do is shift blame from himself or herself 
to something or someone else. They're, they're trying to avoid taking personal responsibility. You know, but the, the truth is, there is no room for a poor man to blame his poverty for turning him into a thief and therefore, therefore justifying his stealing. There's no room for the drunk to blame business or family problems and pressures in his life for driving him to drink and therefore to reckless driving that seriously injures or kills somebody. There's no room for people to say that people who commit acts of terrorism have grievances that somehow drove them to these acts and so then they need to be excused and we just need to understand it. That's, that is shifting the blame. That's shifting the blame. That's trying to say, it's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. Now, now, God may test believers in life in order to strengthen their faith, because that's what his goal is, to strengthen our faith. But God never does anything where, where, he, where he tries to induce sin or he tries to destroy faith. And that's what temptation is all about. It's about inducing you to sin and destroying your faith. Uh, God, God d does not want us to fail. He wants us to succeed. You know, a lot of people think God is, they have this image of God as this old man in heaven who's just waiting for us to trip up so he can zap us. And it's like as if God's saying, oh, I hope he fails. I hope he trips up. I want to get him. But that's not who God is at all. He's rooting for you. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to grow in Christ. Uh, so all that to say that the reality is our failures are never God's fault. It's not God's fault. But here's the question I think that I think it's an interesting, interesting question that we need, to, we need to wrestle with for a minute. And that is, if God really loves us, why doesn't He protect us from temptation? I mean, that would seem like a logical thing because we'd say, well, if He loves me and He doesn't want me to, be, to, to give in to temptation, why does he even let temptation happen in my life? Well, think of it like this. A God who kept us from temptation would be a God that is unwilling to allow us to grow. Because it's in dealing with trials and dealing with temptations, learning to say yes to godliness and no to ungodliness, that's what causes our faith to grow. That's what causes us to get stronger in the Lord. And if we don't have those things, we will continually be uh, just very weak, uh, weak believers who cannot deal with anything in life. So the truth is God actually proves his love by protecting us in temptation instead of protecting us from temptation. Does that make sense? He protects us in temptation instead of protecting us from temptation. And here's where I get that from. It's a verse that's actually many times often uh, misapplied. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Now, the, the misapplication is a lot of people apply this to trials in life. They say, nothing's going to happen that's too hard for you because God promised that, 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 that He'll never give you more than you can handle. Listen, almost all of life is more than I can handle. If, if, if nothing was going to come to me that was more than I could handle, why in the world would I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? That, he's not talking about trials here. He's talking about temptation. When the temptation comes and we're tempted to do what is wrong, we're tempted to sin. He said, no temptation has seized you except what is, what is common to man. So he's saying everybody faces it. But he says, it goes on, he says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's God protecting me in the temptation. That's him allowing me to go through this process so that I can learn to say no to ungodliness and I can learn to say yes to godliness. I can't learn that without dealing with the, with the option to go one way or the other. I can't learn that without the temptation, but God is, protects me in that, in that when I do face the temptation, there's always a way out. Sometimes it's as simple as run away. Like Joseph in the Old Testament. You remember the story how Potiphar's wife uh, begged him and, and cajoled him to try to get him to sleep with her. 
She wanted to have this affair with him and he kept saying no. Finally, she got him cornered in the house when there was nobody else around and she grabs hold of him and says, sleep with me. And he says, how can I do this and sin against you and sin against the, 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 the master of the house, Potiphar? And, and, and he ended up, he, he left his robe behind and ran away. That is the definition of what scripture says, uh, means when it says flee youthful lust. So sometimes the way out is, run away. Some, and very often that's the, that's the way out. But regardless of what it is, in the middle of a temptation, you can begin to look around and say, listen, God is going to protect me in this temptation. He is going to give me a way for me to deal with this. But the problem is, we're going to get to this a little bit later. The problem is that in the middle of the temptation, uh, we forget God. We forget that he's there. We don't look for his help and we become so enamored, enamored with the temptation that we plunge in instead of looking for the way out. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a something that has to happen in our mind when we face it. But, but I, want to, I want to give you some of the resources God gives us during temptation. Number one, first and foremost, he gives us his presence during temptation. Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them for Excuse me, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That's where that quote from the New Testament comes from. Where, it's, where it promises, it's the promise to us is that Jesus will also never leave us nor forsake us. That means in that moment of temptation, when I am really battling it, and I'm really tempted to give in to this sin, He is right there with me. If I will pay attention, if I'll turn my attention to His presence, his presence is going to help me in that moment. Problem is we ignore it. Second thing is he gives us his model, Jesus, during temptation. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, 17 and 18. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, talking about Jesus, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because, listen to this, he himself suffered when he was tempted, but he is able to help those who are being tempted. There again, we have Jesus himself. He's there to help us. Third thing he gives us, he gives us his guidance during temptation. Specifically, he gives us his guidance through the word of God. The, the word of God is a very um, uh, neglected, oft neglected tool that we have in the time of temptation. In fact, the reality is that's how Jesus dealt with temptation. Every time that the, you remember in the wilderness, every time the devil came and tempted him with one uh, of these uh, different major items, he quoted scripture back. That's how he dealt with temptation. And that's what we, we learn in Psalm 119, 105. He says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. His word shows us which way we should go in that moment of temptation. Number, the next one is that God gives us his mission for our life that keeps us directed toward temptation. See, if we keep our eyes on the mission, if we understand God has a purpose for my life and I'm chasing after that goal, then it keeps me focused on what he's calling me to do instead of the temptation. Hebrews 12:1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. I love these last words. The race marked out for us. That means he's got a purpose for me. I'm running a race that he's called me to run. And in that moment of temptation, if I will remember that, it gives me direction and it helps me to focus on what on the long uh, shot, the, 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 the long haul picture, rather than focus on the short term temptation. The next one is God. And this is a very underestimated resource that he gives us. God gives us his people. He gives us his people with whom we can share encouragement during temptation. You know, this is something that some people learn. You know, uh, uh, there, there are people that go through Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous or something like that. One of the things they learn is that when I'm facing that temptation, I need to call, they would, they would call it, I need to call my sponsor. See, what they've learned is this, this uh, little thing called accountability, which by the way, when it comes to accountability, 
No one can hold you accountable. It can't happen. You have to make yourself accountable. The reason I say that is because say there's somebody, say there's a man who's, who's wrestling with pornography and he finds an accountability partner and says, man, I'm struggling with this. I need somebody to hold me accountable. Uh, would you ask me? So, well, listen, he, every time he sees that man, his partner can ask him the right questions. But he still has to make himself accountable. How does he do that? He makes himself accountable, accountable by telling the truth about what he's struggling with. And if he struggled during the week, instead of hiding, see, if he lies and says, oh, man, I've been doing great, but he hadn't been doing great, then he has not been accountable. And the other man, there's no way he can make him be accountable. So, so th this is something that we learn. And, and this is something that happens with us, with, other, with God's people. If we get this, then we can understand that, that, man, I can be honest about the areas of temptation in my life with somebody in the body of Christ whom I love and whom, whom I know loves me. And in that moment of temptation, I can call them and I can count on them to help me. They'll be there to encourage me in that moment. The, so Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider, love this, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The, the body of Christ, I think one of the reasons we so severely underestimate the value of the body of Christ in the American church is because as Americans, we love the Lone Ranger, right? And I'm not talking about the character of the Lone Ranger. I'm talking about we love Rambo. That's who we want to be. We want to be the one guy who stands against all odds. And the, and the truth is, that is not a picture of humanity at all. We desperately need each other, which means that we have to learn to be honest with one another for that to happen. And then one of the great things that he gives us in the middle of temptation is that he gives us his forgiveness when we fall. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I love, we quote that verse to unsaved people and it's right, they need to hear that. But the truth is that was written to Christian people. He's saying, listen, we're all going to struggle. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to fail. We're all going to give in to temptation. But when that happens, we have a God that is faithful and in his faithfulness, he will forgive us. And he is just to do it. It's the right thing to do because of what Jesus did on the cross. So all that to say this, we, we look at verses 14 and 15. And in verses 14 and 15, the, the, in 13, he sort of introduces this idea of temptation and how God is not the one who tempts us. But in verses 14 and 15, he introduces us to sort of the process of temptation and sin. Because, well, let me read it. Said, but, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Temptation always follows a consistent process. This is so important for us to learn if we want to know how to deal with temptation. And I'll, I'll say why in just a moment. But, but James, he introduces this statement. Here with, with the word but, which that, that indicates there's a contrast. So he's, con, he's drawing a contrast between the wrong view that God is the author of temptation. And he's saying that's not the way it is. And he reveals the true source of temptation. And in verse 14, James implies that temptation, in a way, it sort of originates in some kind of external object of lust or desire. Something that we want. Uh, something that we desire. And in the same verse, and here's, here's the, the part we don't like to grab hold of. He clearly states that the one who is tempted is dragged away and enticed by his own evil desire. So what James is doing here, he is teaching us about individual responsibility for sin. That when temptation comes... It's because of my own evil desires that I'm being tempted in the first place. 
We, like I said earlier, we want to blame somebody else, anybody else. You know, God, circumstances, people around us, uh, the devil, whoever. But, but the reality is we alone are responsible for our own sin. It's not anybody else's fault. And the words here are very interesting. The words dragged away. He talks about being dragged away. Well, that's, that was a, a word that's used to describe trapping an animal uh, while they were hunting. So it's a trap, an animal trap. And then he uses the word enticed, which refers to the bait that was used to catch fish. So in a way, what he's saying here is that our own desires can become both the trap and the bait at the same time. And that's the problem is that it's something that's going on inside of us that we have to recognize. And so, which, by the way, if it's something going on inside of me and I'm consistently blaming somebody else, that means I'm never really dealing with the source of the problem. Right? Our, our problem, think about this, a lure dropped into our lives. It's something external. And, and that, by the way, that in and itself is not sin. Being tempted is not sin because Jesus was tempted and he did not sin. So being tempted is not sin. That in, itself, in and of itself is not sin. Our problem is that, that deep within us, a, a, a hunger begins to stir and um, a desire begins to, 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 take, uh, uh, to take a root in our lives to take the bait this lust that happens in us. And by the way, when I use the word lust, I'm not just talking about sexual lust. We can lust after all kinds of things. We can lust after more money. We can lust after power. We can lust after people. So there's all kinds of ways that that can, that can come. But then this moment comes and, and then through this persuasion of, of curiosity mixed with a big dose of rational, rationalization because we're really good at rationalizing, aren't we? We find ourselves somehow drawn toward the lure, motivated by our own desire to have, for it to be mine. And here's the contrast that James is drawing. Whereas God is not even remotely a part of the temptation, not even, not even indirectly, our lustful desires uh, are the direct cause of sin. In fact, we can't even blame the alluring bait. We can't even say, oh, but she was so pretty. We can't blame the bait. The point he's making, we alone are culpable. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a courageous German theologian who was put to death by the Nazis for taking a stand against Hitler's regime, he articulates the process of temptation as clearly and, and as articulately as I've ever found it explained. But let me read it to you what he, what he wrote. In our members there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money or finally that strange desire for the beauty of the world, of nature. Joy in God is in, is in course of being extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. And listen to this line. This is so typical of why we lose the battle in temptation. He finishes it out by saying this. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but, but with forgetfulness of God. That's why we lose the battle because we get so zoned in on the desire, that, that fleshly desire, that evil desire. We get so focused on that that we forget God. I mean, if we really remembered Him and we looked, lifted our eyes and we saw who He is and what He's offering to us and all the blessings of God, there's no way we would choose that, that, that temptation. 
But, but James 1.14, he describes the essential ingredients for temptation, and that is an alluring outward bait plus our inward desire. And when those two are combined, with, 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 when they're combined with a, ye, a will that yields to that temptation, the result is, is the disaster that's described in, in verse 15. And in verse 15, he starts the verse with the word then. So he's talking about an order of, of steps. The order of steps in the process is clear. And he uses this word conceived which is literally used for the conception of a child. And in this context, what James is saying is that when the two necessary ingredients are joined together, which is the object of temptation and our internal lust and desire, he said when they come together, temptation is conceived. It's conceived in that moment. And, and, and a cycle is set in motion that if, the, if, if that cycle is allowed to run its course, it will give birth to a sinful act. Something has to happen in that process. So here are the four steps to sin. I'm going to break it down in four different D's. The first one is desire. Desire. Desire begins primarily as an emotion, a feeling, or a, or a longing for something. And it develops from within us, expressing a want to acquire, achieve, or possess something that we do not have. And that, that desire may develop and, and gain our full attention. Desire then gives way to deception. Now this is more closely related to the mind rather than the emotions. The, the desire might be tied up with emotions, with what we want. But this one's much more related to the mind. Because when we begin to think about a desired object, when we begin to dwell on that, when we begin to let our mind rest there, our mind then... And we are masters at this. Our mind then begins to rationalize a, dis, a justification for getting it. Oh, well, I, you know, here's, I deserve this. I should get this because so-and-so did, you know, whatever. It's like the animal or the fish that goes after the bait. The desire to have what we want is so strong that what happens is then we are, we are inclined to discount possible dangers or harm. We say, ah, it won't happen to me. It's, it's at that point that desire has conceived and temptation is, is being dealt with. And then, then we move on from deception to design. What do I mean by that? Well, this is when plans begin to be made. So now first it's just a desire and it's, and it's this uh, deception that we lead ourselves into to, to justify why it would be okay. Now we begin to make plans to, to figure out how we can make this happen. This is the design stage and, it, and we, 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 plans start to be made to fulfill the emotional desire that we have already rationalized and justified with our minds. Uh, now I'll say this, this stage involves our will. Where the other was about our desires and our mind, but this stage is where we're making a conscious decision to pursue the desire until it is satisfied. And because the will is involved, this is a stage where I feel like most, most guilt uh, lies. And, and what, has, what happens now is that what has been longed for and what has been rationalized is now consciously pursued as a matter of choice. And you know what, the, what that leads to? It gives birth to sin, which is disobedience. If we allow the process to continue, the design inevitably, inevitably produces disobedience to God's law uh, by which it gives birth to sin. That which is desired, rationalized, and willed is now actually done. You know, I think there's a perfect example of this whole process in the Old Testament. Well, there's probably more than one, but, but I can give you one. And that's King David. King David clearly illustrates this process that we see in James 1, 14 and 15. If you remember this, the part of David's life I'm referring to, you'll remember there was a point in time while his armies were out fighting, but David stayed in Jerusalem, lounging and lingering at the palace. Now, had he, had he been with his army where he was supposed to be, then the downward plunge, plunge into immorality could have been avoided. But 
The problem was instead of waging physical war on the battlefield, David began to fight a spiritual war against temptation and he lost. And it all started out innocently enough. As he meandered on the palace roof, walking about, and the, the king's wandering eyes caught a woman bathing. The accidental glance was not in, it, in and of itself a sin. Just glancing over and seeing her was not a sin, but, but mixed with David's restless urges and that unintentional glance then quickly became a willful stare. He noticed that she was very beautiful. The focus of his gaze and his internal desires conceived a powerful temptation that, that few men in David's position could resist. And almost like a victim dropping through a trap door, David's plunge from temptation to sin followed in a, a rapid fire progression. He inquired about her, he sent for her, and he slept with her. He came up with the idea, he had the, the passion, he had the desire and the design, he made a plan, and then he made it happen. All this knowing full well that she was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Which, by the way, if you read in another place in the Old Testament, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was a faithful man to David, and he did this to Uriah. Well, David's sin didn't end with adultery. His immorality turned into desperate attempts at cover-up, as it often happens, and leading ultimately to two deaths. The death of Uriah the Hittite and the death of his son, who was the product of this one-night stand. From lust to death, David's temptation serves as a textbook example of temptation, almost as if he were using James 1, 14 and 15 as a script. Desire leads to deception, which leads to design, which leads to disobedience. Now here's the thing. This is why we, here's why we need to know this. The earlier in the process we determine to resist, the greater the likelihood we will avoid the sin. The longer you play with temptation, the less likely you'll be able to say no to that temptation. You know, the thing is, we can avoid many temptations simply by avoiding places and situations where we know they're most likely to occur, right? We, this, we understand this. We can, if we put it in, in very obvious terms, we can all get it. For example, the alcoholic should probably not frequent bars because he knows that's going to be a place where he's most likely to fall into, into this trouble. The alcoholic should not be wandering into liquor stores right? The alcoholic should not be going to his friend's house who's also struggling with alcoholism because he knows that there's going to be temptation when he, there in that place. And so, so what he's doing is if you avoid that, then what he's doing is he's short-circuiting this temptation process very early on before he even gets to see the object of his desire. So the earlier you can interrupt this process, the better off you are, the better chance you have of overcoming temptation and being able to deal with it. We, we, we can do this by avoiding these things. So we, we have to be on guard at the level of our minds. This is a part, you know, we, we underestimate the importance of dealing with the mind and, re, and, and reforming our mind. Uh, Paul said in Romans 12 that we should be transformed by what? The renewing of our minds. That is how change comes. It comes by changing the way we think. Instead of thinking the way that I have in the past, instead of thinking the way the world does, I learn to think about things the way that God does. I learn to live with biblical thinking. And if I learn to do that, then, then I'm going to recognize things much earlier in the process and I'll be able to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'll be able to overcome those things and deal with them. But the longer I, I wait, the harder it's going to be. You know, when I was in youth ministry, I used to uh, tell young people, I'd say, listen, you need to make up your mind concerning sexual purity before you're in the back seat with, with some other per person of the opposite sex. You, you know, because if you wait until that moment... And you're, now you're trying to make a decision, well, do I give in to this temptation or not? You're almost certainly sunk. 
because you've got to learn to deal with it early. Learn to deal with it in the, early in the process. We've got to train our minds to keep watch over our emotional desires. And instead of rationalizing temptations, what we have to do is prepare in advance to oppose temptations with God's Word. Because that's how Jesus did it. Which is, this points to the fact how, how important it is to have, to get into the Word, and more importantly, to get the Word into us. So, so let me put it this way. If there's an area of your life that you, that you know you struggle with uh, temptation in some certain area, whether it's lust, whether it's, you know, anything else, you know, uh, overeating, I should, I should say that. I got to suck in my stomach when I talk about that. But uh, whatever it is, you know, uh, if I know it's there, then what I need to do is I need to get into the Word and find out what the Word of God says about that so that when that t moment comes and I'm faced with temptation and I can see the temptation coming, the more mature you get in Christ, the further away the temptation is, you, the further you can see it, the further out you can see the temptation coming. And I can begin to use Scripture to retrain the way I'm thinking. That's what I'm doing when I'm memorizing Scripture. I'm retraining my thought patterns so that I can begin to see the world and see the temptation the way that God sees it instead of the way that my sinful nature sees it. So the, 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 the truth is the best time to stop a temptation is before it gets too great, before it's moving too fast to control. But, but I'm telling you right now, if, if the one who is tempted coddles the desire, see, that's what we do. We don't, we's like, we're like, man, I don't want to sin, but I sure, I just want to play with the temptation for a while. As a sure way to set yourself up for failure. If you coddle the, temp, the, the enticement, if you coddle the desire, if you embrace the enticement, if, and then you run to it, or not even just run into it, if you just wander into the trap, the result is going to be an act of sin. We have to be wise in the way we deal with things. The best time to stop sin is at the moment we realize that the desire is about to become focused. I mean, a simple, silly example. You're driving along and you see some really good-looking... You're a guy, okay? And you see some really good-looking woman driving, running down the road and, and she's scantily dressed, the desire might be to take a longer look. But you've got to learn how to not coddle that desire. And you say, no, eyes ahead. But when you give in to the enticement is when you say, oh, I think maybe I forgot something. And you go around the block again so you can get a second look. See, now you're playing with it. And it may, you know, I'm not saying that you're going to just jump out of the car and, have, and commit adultery. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying is what you're doing is you're training your mind to think in certain ways to say it's okay to go this far. It's okay to this, go this far. And eventually you'll keep going further down the road. And there's a very good chance that someday you will cheat on your wife and you will ruin the things that matter the most to you. So you deal with it early. You deal with it early. Let's look at verse 16. He says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He's created. I'm not going to talk a lot about the last part of that. Uh, the whole idea about first fruits there is that we are new creations in Christ and he is going to, we know that there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. So as newly created beings in Christ, we are the first fruits of, of, of the new creation that he is going to bring about. But, but he starts off in here, he says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. And I, I think it's significant that he, that he refers to these believers as my dear brothers, because it's sort of what it does. He, at the same time, he softens the warning, but he directs it to them at the, at the same time. He softens it and directs it, um, and he mixes even the hard statements that he, that he has to write with reminders of his love behind the letter, and, and there's a principle in there. People will listen to hard things more readily when they're convinced that the one saying them is doing so out of genuine love. The, all effective discipline comes out of relationship. Um, 
this is what, you know, people who are dealing with children, they don't understand sometimes. Because they want to discipline the children, they want to have a heavy hand, but they don't have any relationship with the children. So they might be able to force the behavior they want at the moment, but they're not really doing anything to help that child long term. Because the most effective discipline comes out of relationship. And if there's, a, if there's a fellow believer in Christ who's struggling, who needs to hear something hard, uh, something difficult to, to, to hear, it's, it's the person whom they know love them the most that they're going to be willing to hear from them the most. So I think that's just a little principle there. But in contrast to the view that God sends evil, this is what James is doing here. He's another contrast because he already said God does not, don't say God tempts me because God doesn't do evil, doesn't tempt anybody with evil. But in contrast to that, James points out that no, God does not tempt us with evil. But in fact, God is the source of everything good. He's the opposite of that. Not only does God not tempt us, he is actively providing everything good that we find in life. God is the author of salvation, not the author of temptation. Uh, and the, the danger behind James's warning to us not to be deceived is the temptation to believe that God does not care or that he won't help us or that he may even be working against us. But, but the truth is that everything God gives us is good and his gifts are perfect. They're perfect. He says every good and perfect gift, good, God's gifts are good gifts given at the right time for good purposes. That's a huge thing to remember. Now, the, the, there's a kind of a, a negative side of that, but it's only negative in the sense that, uh, that the, the way that we kind of look at it. But uh, the truth is, knowing that God's gifts are good gifts and they're given at the right time for good purposes, that means that God may withhold a good gift from me that would not be perfect for me. Right? Anything good that he gives me, it's because he knows that is perfect for me. But on the flip side of that, that same gift may be perfect for you. And that truth should help us rejoice with other people when they receive good gifts from God even though we have not received that same good gift. See this? We, we can be sure, assured that God always wills the best for us. Now, it doesn't mean the most comfortable for us, does not mean the most pleasant for us, but what is best for us. I mean, listen, let's just be real. When I was growing up, there were many times that my parents did what was best for me, but it was not pleasant nor comfortable for me. Uh, particularly, I'm thinking of the many times that I got, uh, uh, shall we say, a whooping. And, and I deserved every one of them. Well, except for one. I'll tell you that story another time, but my parents didn't give me that one. But there were other times when I deserved one I didn't get, so it all evens out in the end. But, uh, uh, you know, he always does what's best for us. And he gives us the right gifts at the right time for a good purpose. You know, uh, Ephesians 2.10 uh, is one of my favorite verses. Uh, we, we know 2, 8, and 9 because it talks about, we're, by, for by grace are you saved through faith, not, not of yourselves, as, not of works, lest any man boast, all that kind of stuff. But then verse 10 goes right along with it because he says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he uh, fit, up for, fit, fit up with us beforehand is kind of a loose translation of it. But the idea behind verse 10 is that God has a specific plan for your life. Therefore, he will give you everything you need to fulfill that plan. Tied in with Hebrews 12.1 that we read earlier. There's a race that you have to run. There's a race that he has set out for you, a calling he's put on your life. You need gifts to fulfill that calling. You don't need the gifts that I have to fulfill mine. And, and so, you know, 
God's not like uh, the, the well-meaning relative who gives the beautiful warm coat that we've always wanted. But when you get it, it's several sizes too small. God get, God's gifts are very good. But every one of his gifts fit us perfectly. Because he's going to give you, he's not going to call you to something to which he will not equip you for. Excuse me, for which he will not equip you. That's the better way to say it. More grammatically correct. He's not going to call you to something for which he will not equip you. He's not going to call you to do something that is impossible for you to do without the giftings that you, you know, like, like if, you can't, if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, he's not going to call you to uh, write music. Well, maybe write music, but because <laughs> maybe, maybe you can't sing and still write music, but he's not going to call you probably to be a worship leader. If you can't stand in front of people and talk, he may not be calling you. He probably won't call you to preach sermon in front of people. But you know what? He has called you to something. And what, to whatever he's called you, he has gifted you. His gifts always fit perfectly. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, that we have a way to deal with temptation. And, and Lord God, I, I, we, we are not ignorant to the process of temptation. We're not, we're not uh, uh, ignorant of, of what each step leads to, Lord God, but sometimes we get so caught up in the moment and focused on the object of our desire that, God, we forget who you are. We forget you're right there. And, Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we deal with temptation, Lord, that we would, we would cut that process off as early as possible, whether it's by, maybe by avoiding that, that, that situation whenever possible, Lord God, or whether we're in the middle of it and we, we call a a fellow believer and say, I need to talk to somebody. I need some encouragement or whether we memorize scripture and we begin to quote that verse and begin to allow that word to transform the way we think about life, whatever it is, God, I just pray you'd help us and help us to learn to deal with temptation properly and in a way that honors you. And God, we also thank you that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And Lord, I thank you that your calling on me is different than the calling you have for someone else. And that means that their gifts are going to be different than mine. And Lord, that's okay. I don't have to be able to do everything well that other people are doing because I am not called to, to run their race. But God, thank you for every good and perfect gift. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to, to focus in on that and to pursue that, that calling. Because Lord, that is one of the best ways to deal with temptation. Because when we're focused on running that race, when we're focused on your calling on our lives, it's a lot easier to ignore the peripheral things and ignore those desires and temptations that are there. God, we know we're going to have to deal with them, but we also know, Lord, we don't have to do it alone, that your spirit is here, your presence is here, and you will help us. And we thank you for all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.